Good evening. Thanks for joining us tonight. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 14 as we continue on in our study of the Gospel of Luke. And here we're going to see a fundamental contrast between the way of religion and the way of love. So let's ask the Lord to help us as we open up his word and then dive right in. Father, tonight we're thankful for your goodness to us and your love. We're thankful for warm homes and for power that's on and all these uh, amazing things that you give us that, quite frankly, we don't even have to think about, let alone be thankful for. Uh, but nonetheless, we know you're the giver of all good gifts, and certainly when it's zero degrees outside, uh, heat and shelter are very good gifts. So thank you so much. But thank you so much, as we learned last week in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 13, that you are like a father who, uh, in, in the picture of an eagle, brings us into your fold and covers us. It's reminiscent of the wonderful words in Isaiah. And we're thankful that we have that kind of shelter, not only physically, as we're thankful this week, but spiritually. We're thankful for your good gift to us of Jesus Christ and to his sending of the Spirit of God into our hearts to regenerate us and to make us all the more new in you and to help understand the great dilemmas of this age. And one of them is how can men uh, claim to know you and claim to do deeds in your name and yet be so harsh and so hard on the very creatures that are made into your image and to the rest of humanity. And so tonight as we uh, move into uh, the explanation from our Savior's lips through parable, we pray that you would help us to investigate our own hearts and to take comfort where we see the wonderful, sacrificial, Christ-like, modeled love oozing out of us. We pray that it would be true all the more in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks again for joining us, and let's just get into Luke chapter 14, where I want to make a little bit of an observation here at the start that it's interesting to me that of all the Jewish sects, Jesus really does interact the most with the Pharisees, and I think that's because there is some compatibility with Jesus and the Pharisees. Now, I said some, and uh, really there's probably way less compatibility than there is compatibility. I think you understand perhaps those things. But of the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, all these other sects, um, the Pharisees and Jesus seem to align themselves, at least doctrinally, specifically with the doctrine of the resurrection. Uh, but but often I think uh, Jesus and the Pharisees really intersect and interact and might seem at least on the very surface compatible is because the Pharisees really are pursuing uh, the best that they know how in their own efforts nonetheless, but really are pursuing what it seems to look like to, to, to live to look like God and to be holy. And uh, we could say that uh, there's a quality about the Pharisees that can be confused with the character of Jesus. And that life looks different for the Pharisees just like it looks different 
for Jesus. And life seems to be in the pursuit of holiness, just like Jesus is pursuing uh, holiness. And life is claiming to be pursuing pleasing God, just like Jesus claims to pursue the pleasing of God. But we know that Jesus talks about not just life that appears different, right? That's the key. Jesus actually gives us life that is different, new life, new birth. And certainly, uh, as we page through the Gospels, I'm, I'm not claiming by any stretch of the imagination that we want to hold the Pharisees to anything um, like Jesus. Jesus uh, shows us the way of regeneration. He provides that way through his substitutionary atonement, and he gives us the Spirit whereby we are called children of God, and we are made completely new creatures in Jesus Christ. The, the Pharisees don't claim that. But on the surface, at some level, at surface levels, I think that there, there, are, there are reasons why people can get confused with a Pharisee kind of living and Jesus Christ. And uh, we remember, however, the altogether uh, straight-up condemnation of the Pharisees by Jesus in Matthew, where he says, Woe to you hypocrites! You are like, what? White washed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And so it's easy to take for granted what is on the outside is is not necessarily what is on the inside. That's Jesus's point in Matthew. And as we hunker down into Luke chapter 14, we're going to see Jesus sitting with the Pharisees at dinner. And Jesus is going to cause this question to come up. This question of, is what is on the outside really what's on the inside? And Jesus, in Luke 14 here, addresses the emptiness, the lifelessness of their religious system. But he does so a little less direct than in Matthew chapter 23, where he calls them hypocrites, and he says that you are whitewashed tombs, you are painted pretty on the outside, but you are dead man's bones on the inside. He does it a little bit indirect here, a little less direct. And so we're going to see how Jesus employs a sequence of parables, or changes the parable each time at a dinner party to expose the lifeless skeleton of their religious system. A religious system, by the way, that is alive and well in its death, if I can put it that way, today. It has many names, and it is altogether the majority today. But nonetheless, it is the same revelation that Jesus has here for all religious systems that are lifeless and empty outside of him. And so if you listen to the previous sermon in Luke, you might remember the quote from Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, where he talks about the abuses of culture from the religious, from the clergy, from the men of the cloth. And I just want to remind us again of that quote. It's one of my favorite quotes because it simply reminds me that it's not enough to be religious. And certainly it's not enough to... Uh, to disregard the individual. 
Jesus is all about the individual. Jesus is all about someone's heart that is born again and new and regenerate. That way they can invest the way Christ would have us to invest in individuals. And so he says this in A Christmas Carol. Uh, the ghost of Christmas present says this, rather. He says, there are some upon this earth, and he's talking about religious people. There are some upon this earth of yours who claim to know me and my brothers and do their deeds of ill will and selfishness in our name. These so-called men of the cloth are as strange to me and my kin as if they never lived. Charge their doings to them and not to us. So while the Pharisees and Jesus may seem on the surface to have some compatibility, no doubt Jesus would use these similar words, and frankly he does in Matthew chapter 23 when he calls them whitewashed tombs. He says, you look nothing like me and my father's business. And so the big question is for us as we look at Luke chapter 14 is how do we know that we are and what we are is not part of this empty religion? How do we know that we are true? How do we know that we are truly in Jesus Christ and not just part of this pharisaical kind of religious religiosity? So what separates us from a pharisaical relationship with God and with Jesus and quite, quite frankly with others? What assurances do we have that we are born anew, transformed, and true disciples of Jesus Christ and not just playing the part like the Pharisee? And so we see that the difference between empty, empty religion and true salvation bears fruit in, in Christ-like love for others. In other words, love isn't necessarily the catalyst for those things. We know that new birth and regeneration through the Holy Spirit is. But, but nonetheless, when we are truly born again, when we truly do know Jesus as our Savior, when we truly are living for him and not for ourselves, we aren't bound into a religious system that essentially abuses others to further that system rather than to be sacrificial and to want what's best for the individual. And so we're going to see that Christ-like love, it's consistent, it's radical, and it's sacrificial in putting others first. It's consistent, it's radical, and it's sacrificial. And so each parable sequence helps us unlock the emptiness, the lifelessness of the pharisaical religiosity. And it helps us define what qualities truly demonstrate Christ-like love. Not just word love, but Christ-like love. And so uh, let's begin reading in Luke chapter 14. And we're going to begin reading in verse 1, where we're going to see Christ-like love consistently puts others first. Luke sets the background here of the parable and gives us a scene. Jesus was invited to a dinner by a leader of the Pharisees. In verse 1, Luke says, It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. 
Notice the critical nature of the Pharisees, right? Jesus comes in, and they were watching him closely. Luke records that for us. It's quite a, it's quite a, narr- a narrative, a narrative uh, perspective. So they're already very critical of Jesus. And we see why, the setup. There was a man suffering. And quite frankly, because of his medical condition, he was considered unclean or would have been at least considered undesirable to have around the dinner table. And uh, dropsy was a, a real need. It was a, it was a medical condition that had many different symptoms that pointed to some potentially major uh, medical concerns. And there could be a, a part of the tissue or any part of the body would accumulate with fluid. And so certainly it was an unsightly thing. If, if the fluid was oozing out of someone, sorry to be gross, but, but it's related, it, it would be a matter of uncleanness from the law, uh, from the Mosaic law. And so uh, there's no doubt that this man is not a normal guest to the dinner party. And yet he's there. And the Pharisees are watching him closely. And so this man had an issue, whether it was with his heart, a kidney, or liver. One of those three are often, were often the causes to uh, having some accumulation of, of fluid. And the Pharisees were really just interested in using him as a religious pawn. They didn't really see the value of this, of this man. They brought him and they brought Jesus to the dinner table because it was the Sabbath. We're going to see that here, right? The Pharisees on the Sabbath in verse 1. And uh, so he's a cheap chess piece that is easily dispensable in order to achieve a bigger win. He's just a pawn. He's a means to an end. He's collateral damage. And you know, altogether, all too often, the religious systems of that day and of this day treat people as pawns, as means to an end, as collateral damage. And they fail to see the, the singular soul value of an individual, certainly like Jesus does. And so it's apparent that the Pharisees were more interested in the application of the law and bringing about their point in tripping up Jesus than they were of this man. For the religious adherence to a system is often more important than the individual. But Jesus shows another way. Love and God's law are not in conflict with each other. Love and God's law are not in conflict with each other. They never were. They never have been. And Jesus is going to tell us that God's law is actually fulfilled through love. And we see that here in verses 3 through 6, where there are no exceptions to this consistent, Christ-like, sacrificial love. How do we know if our love is true and real and Christ-like? Well, the first quality, as I mentioned, is consistency. Consistency of love. And the Pharisees didn't have that. The Pharisees tried to apply the law and negate needing to love. That's very clear with the chess piece in front of us, with the man with the medical condition. They didn't care about him. They cared about tripping up and causing confusion with Jesus' followers. And God's law is intended to help us value our neighbor's life, not, not use it 
not twist it, not cheapen it for our, for our own religious or political or, or, or economic good. And that is the test of Christ-like love. Is it consistently applied, or is it something that we can, we can easily, um, you know, just change on the whim because it suits us, because it's to our advantage? And so in verse 3, we see Jesus answered. And you know what's interesting? is Luke doesn't record anything. I mean, Jesus answered. Well, what did he answer? Luke doesn't record if the Pharisees said anything, if, if it, but it's, it's just obvious. It's just apparent. They're looking at Jesus. They're critical, seeing they're watching him closely. There's a man with a medical condition. It's the Sabbath. What's Jesus going to do? It's no surprise. This is the third time that he's healed. It will be the third time that he's healed on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees want to make a point. Jesus, you're breaking God's law, the very God whom you claim to be sent from. And Jesus wants to take their point and frankly teach them, no, you have no concept of God and his law. You may claim to exercise it, but it is an outward shell that has no inner substance. And Jesus shows us the way. So Jesus answered, verse 3, and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And notice Luke continues to tr give the Pharisees the silent treatment. I believe here it's because they were silent. He says, verse 4, but they kept silent, right? So not a word, still. And he took hold of the man with dropsy, and he healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, to the Pharisees, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could not make no reply to this. And they could, excuse me, they could make no reply to this. They found a way to twist God's law and to exempt themselves. And in light of God's standards for love, all religiosity is silenced. And that's a, a clear point here in Luke, right? Religiosity really can't stand the test. It, it can't pass the test of true Christ-like sacrificial love. We don't hear from the Pharisees from chap, uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. In fact, as we continue to go into the sequence of parables here, we don't hear from the Pharisees. The sole exception is in verse 15, which we'll see a little later. And Jesus argues that they would have no trouble taking exception to their standard. They would have no trouble to help their own son, whom they are personally invested in, who they clearly see the value of helping, they have no trouble from a greater argument to even a lesser argument to pull out an ox that is valuable to them. And yet, a singular suffering soul whom they have no personal connection with, but nonetheless a soul whom has all the value in the world, yet not to the Pharisees. See, there is no exception to consistently applying sacrificial Christ-like love. It, it's not, this person 
is worth more and this person's not. That, that doesn't exist. That doesn't compute from God of heaven and his son, Jesus Christ. No, every soul is uniquely and individually so valuable that it is worth healing on the Sabbath. And by the way, Jesus isn't breaking the Sabbath until get into that, but it's, it's because they're actually twisting the Sabbath. They're twisting honoring the Sabbath when really the Sabbath is made for us, for the value of the soul. And so it's completely missing the point. The question is, what value does this man have with the medical condition? What value does he have to the Pharisees, the obvious answer is not very much. It's worth throwing the law in his face and saying, go away. But what about to God? And verse 6 says, they just don't have a good answer. They could not make a reply to this. Because there never is a conflict between what is right and true sacrificial love. There never is a conflict. And when the Pharisees are bemoaned with conflict. We see that they're either not right, or they're not truly loving, or probably both. Now Jesus focuses on the very behavior at the dinner party as we move along in verses 7 through 12. He will point out another empty, lifeless aspect of the Pharisees' religious system, and he will show us that Christ-like love radically puts others first. Not only does it consistently put others first, but it radically does. So let's read verses 7 through 12. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests. And so these are the other Pharisees sitting around at the dinner table when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone may distinguish them. Uh, someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man, the more distinguished, the more honorable. And then in disgrace, you, will, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all those who are at the dinner table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who hum humbles himself will be exalted. And Christ-like life is radical because it costs something. You know, verse 10 kind of brings that about, right? Go sit in the what? In the last place. That's Jesus' advice. Why? Because Christ-like love radically costs something. And you know, there was a, a culture of shame and honor here. And, and quite frankly, there, there even is today at the dinner table. You, you know, if you're having a little bit more formal of a, a dinner time, which we often maybe don't do too, 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 too often, but, but we do that at our house around Christmas time. Is, uh, we, we make kind of a, are you a naughty or are you a nice 
kind of uh, thing that someone pulls out of the stocking, and and uh, and so their names there, and then and then uh, we have a little thing that says they were either naughty or nice this year, and and I don't know who gets to decide that, uh, but um, I've never been naughty, so uh, it's 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 pretty amazing. Uh, but so we have at the dinner table, we have these little place cards or or these little name cards, and and uh, so we tend to you know, put all the kids over there so they can have their chaos, and we move the adults, you know, to the other side. And so there's, there's somewhat of, of that true even today, I think, in our practice. It certainly is true uh, growing up, right, when you were going to go on a trip with just dad or with just mom, and you had some siblings, what did you do? Right? When you're getting into the car, before you get to the car, what do you call? You call shotgun, right? Which I... I was trying to think through, why, why do we call it calling shotgun? Do you know? It's because, uh, you know, back before automobiles, they had these things called stagecoaches, right? And so uh, certainly out west and, and in the pioneer days, right, as you're, you're kind of going out west, uh, things were a little less safe. And so you had the stagecoach, you know, uh, driver kind of doing the horse thing, and the guy a.k.a. a bodyguard, sat next to him on the other side, and he often had a shotgun. And so uh, that's essentially, I, I, I think, where the, the term came from. And so, uh, you know, we, we as kids, you know, say, hey, shotgun, I'm going to be in the front seat first because that's the cool place to be. That's the place of honor, right? Not in the back with the rest. And so often in this culture, more senior members of the dinner would arrive after most of the guests. And so uh, this kind of makes sense as Jesus says, you know, go to the last place and wait for the host to call you up. If we try to, you know, take and secure the places of honor ahead of time, you know, someone of more cloud of, of more honor may come in. And oftentimes it was true that the most honorable guests would come in later. They would come in after everybody else is there. It's kind of like, you know, the State of the Union, right? The House and the Senate, they all assemble at the Capitol. Everybody's in place. The president's not there. The president's not waiting in line trying to get in. No, everyone gets there. They get seated, right? And the president shows up with his motorcade, you know, like two minutes after the thing's supposed to start, and he walks just right in. Why? Because he is the most honorable, right? And how crazy would it be, right, if, if one of just the mere House of Representatives uh, just came and stood where the president was going to be speaking and, and decided this is going to be his spot? No, that would be embarrassing. No one does that. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Don't elevate yourself when it's not your place to elevate yourself, which really gets to the heart of real religiosity with the religious system. It's all about self-promotion. It's all about getting up to the top. You know, in the corporate world, we'd say it's all about climbing the ladder, and that's no different in a religious system. But Jesus says, and he says it often, right? The first shall be last, right? And the last shall be first. You know, that is the exalted order. That's, that's a, a, a universal eschatological theme that reverberates from the Gospels to the Epistles to when we see Jesus ourselves. 
It occurs six times in Luke. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. It appears two times in Matthew, one time in Romans, one time in Philippians, one time in 1 Timothy, two times in James, and another time in 1 Peter. It's a pretty powerful statement, isn't it? Don't elevate yourself. Don't elevate yourself. Can you imagine? Can you imagine just the irony? I mean, who's, who's the guest at this dinner table? It's the king of kings. It's the Lord of the Lord. And they're all clamoring, trying to get the biggest, best, most honorable seat. And the king of kings is right there. Who deserves the most honorable position? And yet, what does he do? He doesn't even care about the seats. He goes to the man who needs him the most, the man with dropsy. And he says, you're worth something. You're worth way more than clamoring for positions. Proverbs chapter 25, verses 6 through 7 is a great little cross-reference, a great little proverb to help you and to help me understand this reality. Do not, do not uh, uh, stand in the place of great men, but let the king call you up. That's what that proverb says. And I'd encourage you to, to cross-reference that and perhaps to maybe even um, memorize that because it is, a, it, is, it is antithetical to self-promotion, to the corporate nature, to, to certainly the religious system. It certainly doesn't mean we don't work hard. It certainly doesn't mean we don't have ambitions, but we have ambitions that are checked by who ultimately does the promoting. We have ambitions that are checked by what is ultimately the most important. Is it a soul or is it my place? And so we see all too often this reality that it costs to love. It costs to be sacrificial. It's radical. And it's because God will exalt us. Look at, look at that. We'll see that here in, uh, actually later on. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but we'll see that in, in verse, 14, verse 14, that we'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And so while it does cost something, uh, there is a promise and hope for the exaltation. The exaltation. Jesus Christ certainly had that. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to wait. We don't have to clamor like the Pharisees. You know that? We don't, we, don't have to, we don't have to compete with each other among who's going to be exalted here. Right? We have you know, four pastors, five pastors on staff, and you know, pastors of other churches, sometimes they wonder, well, how does that work? You guys compete? You guys have, you guys, you know? And the answer is no. Because we're just like the elders, just like the deacons, just like those who God has called as members of this church. We're all going to be exalted. That's a promise. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to wait. It is secured in Jesus Christ. You know, we can certainly cross-reference the epistles like Ephesians chapter 1. What a beautiful thing that we will be exalted. But sacrificial love is radical because it doesn't move that way. It, it knows that promise 
is coming. And isn't that wonderful? That, that God tells us, hey, you know what? Consider yourselves last. But that's not how it's going to be. Because God could really just say, hey, you know what? Consider yourselves last and not give us any comfort and not give us any hope that that's going to ever change. And he would be right to do that. Because we really ought to consider ourselves last. But God says, you know what? Consider yourselves last. And I tell you, you are going to have so much. And you will be exalted. What a wonderful God we serve. God is the one who makes us successful. But self-promotion always, always, mark it down, always ends in failure. Now, Jesus focuses on the very dinner occasion. He was focusing on the, 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 the invited guests in verses 7 through 12. And we, were, we saw the setup in verses 1 through 6. And so we've seen that sacrificial love is consistent. We've seen that it is radical because it costs. And yet the cost will ultimately bring us about exaltation. And, and then we see that sacrificial love just puts others first. It, it, it's willing to sacrifice. True Christ-like love is sacrificial. And Jesus focuses on the very dinner occasion. He points out in a very personal way the host's glaring flaw. So we see the, the dinner set up. We see the invited guests. And now he moves his comments directly to the host of this dinner party. So Christ-like love is sacrificial because it puts others first. And in verses 12 through 15, let's just read that. He says, uh, And he also went on to say, and just remember to this point, that Jesus is the only one who has spoken. Luke, certainly as the narrator, has given us some clues, but not a peep from the Pharisees. Now, I'm not saying that they, had, they, they didn't talk, but Luke is really, quite frankly, um, kind of just putting the spotlight on Jesus. And, and it's, it's kind of like these, these Pharisees are just the, the, certainly the backdrop and the context for Jesus' uh, comments. But, but it's also like as much as they clamor for honor and as much as this host throws this big party and, 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 and there's a lot of to do, Luke says, you know what, that stuff, even by the way he narrates, that stuff's really not important. The king of kings... And the way of love is not this religious system, not the cloud of sitting around a table at a, at a specific position. So he went on to say, verse 12, to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, or otherwise they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. And you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And so we see that Christ-like love is sacrificial and it puts others first. And before we kind of move on, I, I want to just take a second to make some observations as a whole here between verses 7 and 14 and 15. Because it's quite astounding. 
If you go back and you look at the word invited in the NASB, maybe some other translations have called, uh, you're going to see that that word occurs some over ten times, I believe. Uh, Certainly it it occurs a few more times, three more times in verses 16 through 24, but I think at least ten times here in verses 7 through 15. We've got to understand why. And so in verse 7, we see that he began speaking a parable to the invited guests, right? In verse 8, when you are invited, he says, when you have been invited, verse 9, right? There's, that would be, uh, verse 7 is 1, twice in verse 8. Verse 9 is 4, and he who invited you, verse 10, but when you are invited, that's 5. Verse 12, the one who had invited him, right? Whoever invited him, do not invite your friends, verse 12. May also inv- uh, so that they may also invite you in return, verse 12. So that's eight so far, right, on my count, if I counted right. Verse 13, but when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, All right? So that's nine, so almost, almost ten. Maybe I missed one. You can text me and let me know that I can't count with my digits, All right? But what's the point? The point is, you know, Sacrificial love has nothing to do with what I bring to the table. I mean, that's the point of verses 7 through 11, isn't it? I mean, it, it's, it's, it, it's some sense, it's, it's radical, right? Just going back to the, the second point, it's radical, right? That, that these guests are moving around the dinner table, clamoring for who's the best, when none of them really deserve to be there outside of an invitation. Think about that. Think about the potential spiritual realities of that. In verses 12 through 15, it's, it's a different sense. The, the host of the dinner table is now inviting people, and Jesus is saying, well, why did you invite them? Is it because they'll invite you? Is it because they have stuff they can bring you? Is it because these relationships are kind of like prid, uh, quid pro quo? And so, certainly, we don't have anything to bring to the table. And that's why it's radical. And certainly, as we move on to verses 12 through 15, we understand that you know, God doesn't invite us to his table because we have something to offer. We don't. We don't. And so we should not operate that way ourselves. And that really is Jesus' point, I believe. And the frequency of this word just has to uh, only, only focus and emphasize that more. And so sacrificial love is not motivated by gain. You know, how can we in the church be motivated by gain. Think about that. You know, when Pastor Tim, um, who has 30 plus some years of, of ministry experience here, he, he often, one of the, one of the many values um, as I sit underneath him and learn from him is he will often uh, take that experience and his, um, his, Knowledge and, and love for the Word of God and, and kind of marry those two things together in some very, very powerful statements. And, and I, I won't forget, you know, as we were sitting down one day, he, he just, he said, you know, Steve, there are, there are really two people in the world. 
you know, and he's addressing this from a very specific standpoint. He said, there's really two people in the world. There are people who are givers, and there are people who are what? Takers. And really, that's, that's what we're asking here. You know, as you kind of get into this church context, you know, even at church, right, where we're supposed to be sacrificial and love and, and, and really be at the height of those kind of things. What's your relationship to the church? What's your motivations? Is it so I can get? Or is it so I can give? There's two types of people. That's a profound statement. And that's really essentially what Jesus is saying here. Pharisee host, you're a getter. You're a taker. Pharisees who are sitting around clamoring for position, you're all takers. True love doesn't look for any reciprocity. True love doesn't clamor for quid pro quo. True love is sacrificial love. It's not just words. It's so demonstrable. How can we be like that in the community? You know, I'm part Croatian, right? So uh, my grandfather was Croatian, so I think I'm a quarter Croatian, something like that. Um, but I still buy Girl Scout cookies. So what does that have to do? Well, uh, any Croatian that I know, and I'm one, so I can say this, I think, right? I've earned these credits. Any Croatian that I know, right, they always want what they can get for the bottom line, for the cheapest, Right? And I'm learning that that's not always the motivation. Now, certainly in the marketplace, there's really no reason. <laughs> Maybe this is my Croatian coming out. There's absolutely no reason not to price shop. And there's absolutely, and with the internet, and there's absolutely no reason why not to get the best price you can, right? But Girl Scout cookies don't follow those kind of rules, right? I mean, if I want cheap cookies that are really good, you know, I just asked my wife, sweetie, can we make some cookies? And flour and chocolate chips and a little bit of butter don't cost anything, right? That's cheap. That's good, right? But why do I buy Girl Scout cookies when, there's the sound effect, when someone comes up to my door? It's because it's my neighbor. It's because I'm not going to say, well, hey, you know, I know you're selling them for $5 a box. You know, I could probably make them for like 50 cents. How about we split the difference and I buy them for a dollar, right? It doesn't work that way, right? I'm going to buy Girl Scout cookies and I'm going to spend $5 or $10 and they're radically getting more expensive because I want to invest in that person. It's not about that transaction. It's not about the cost and the cookies and the bottom line for me. Right. And that's really Jesus' point is, you know, how do you look at opportunities that are in front of you? Certainly, at the marketplace is the marketplace. But even in the marketplace, we can, we can take that to the extreme. We can lose sight of, of the value and of the opportunity of the soul rather than the getting. And so Jesus says there's no room to barter with the Girl Scouts. Frankly, that's what he's saying. There's no room to do that. If you are compelled to invest, don't look for anything in return. That, my friends, goes smack against all religious systems. Smack against all 
cultures. There's only one that shows us the way to do that. That is Jesus Christ. So Jesus' point is, what are my intentions? And my intentions must be giving intentions. How do I view fellowship here at this church? Right? I asked us to really think about and drill down into the, into the church context. Right? I think it's pretty easy in the community to understand these things. But what about even in church? How do I, how do I view fellowship? You know, ah, the food wasn't that good. I'm really not going to do that again. Or, or they're not even offering food, so I'm not going. What is that? That's taking. Right? Well, I don't really know that person. I got all my friends over here at church, so I'm not going to really invest in that. What is that? That's taking. You know, how do I do view discipleship? I don't really have time. You know, they're really not putting in efforts. What is that? That's taking. You know, I don't really get along with them so well, so I'm just going to kind of back off. What is that? That's taking. How do I view the preaching of, the, of God's word? You know, I'm, I, here's a newsflash for you, all right? You can, you can just fill in the name of your favorite preacher who you listen to in podcast and, and TV or, or, or radio, whatever it is, all right? Chances are I am not going to ever amount to why you like that person, frankly. Maybe Pastor Tim, but probably not even Pastor Tim. Right? You're stuck with us. Is that an excuse for you to kind of go that route? You know, I, I don't mean this be, to say that, you know, we're, we're all things and we're great and, you know, we're the best thing since sliced bread. No, my point is I know we're not. But, you know, what, what brings me up and to do this? It's because... Ephesians 4 says, for some reason, God called me through this church to be a pastor, which I would say would never have been my choice, frankly. I was compelled to do that by this very congregation and, and led to do that. And, and now, somehow, I'm a gift to this church. I don't get it. I wouldn't want to listen to me. And so... You know, now you can download the new church app and go ahead and listen to me in, in one and a half times the speed to get done with all of these crazy illustrations and get them out of the way. But the, the point is, is how do I even view preaching around here? You know, oh, it's so-and-so. He's just the youth pastor. I, I really like, you know, Pastor Mike and Pastor Kent and Pastor Tim or whatever. Maybe, maybe I'm your favorite, but probably not. And that's okay. My point is, it doesn't matter, right? How, how are we taking and doing the word of God? Because if we start to get into 1 Corinthians chapter 1 problems where it becomes about personality, rather the power behind the word of God, we're going to be a bunch of takers around here, not givers. You can mark it down. Anytime there's divisive issues in the church, it's because someone or a group of people chose to be takers, not givers. So how do I view my investment in this church? You know, do I just come? Do I just sit down? Do I just turn on TV, watch the stream? Or I'm actually actively asking and considering and, and seeking out what spiritual gifts God has given me so that I can actually invest them into this church. You know, Pastor Tim has really, really led us well in this whole lockdown quarantine thing, right? 
You can't be satisfied being a born-again, spirit-indwelt person and not be a contributing member of the body. So here's another application, my friends. Sometimes we've, we, we, especially during this time, we've kind of gotten into this little, okay, I can't really minister, the things aren't really going on. But we can't stay in a taker mindset. Mindset. What are we giving? What kind of contributions are we giving? And I'm not speaking financially here. I'm speaking spiritual giftedness. So sacrificial love is the quality that we're investigating here to put others first. And love is not uh, merely just words. I mean, frankly, that's what the Pharisees are good at. That's that whitewashed tomb, right? But love is certainly in action. You know, the sole response verbally of the Pharisees in this passage gives us a clear indicator that they're not getting it. Look at verse 15. When one of those who were climbing at table, so one of the Pharisees who were with Jesus around the table heard what Jesus said about, you know, don't invite your friends and the rich, but invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, right? So that we don't seem to be getting rather than giving. When one of them heard this, this is the response. This is the sole response Luke records. This is beautiful. And at, at surface, we may not even think that this is a problematic response, but I think it is. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom. Boy, those are words. And those words sound good. But what are they doing about those words? They're sitting around the table enjoying the feast when Jesus says, all you're doing is quid pro quoing. All you're doing is seeking and taking Blessed is everyone who will, what? Eat bread. Blessed is everyone who's going to get. We're all going to get. Blessed is everyone who's going to get. And there's self-righteous, self-measurement, self-promotion. They're good. And they're going to be good now, and they're going to be good in the future. And so it's interesting that I think that statement really turns and frames this next parable sequence when he says there's a lot of people who are going to be invited there's our word again but none of them are going to actually sit down at the table why because they were takers and not givers why because they spoke love but they didn't do love sacrificial love that is consistent. They put the law. They made exceptions. Sacrificial love that is radical. It costs to do this kind of love. And Jesus showed us the way, didn't he? Sacrificial love that puts others first without any kind of reciprocity, without any kind of quid pro quo. But you know what's beautiful? Just like last time where, where Jesus said, you know what? It's going to cost you. It's radical, this kind of sacrificial love, but it's going to be repaid. 
It's, you're going to be exalted. The beautiful thing is, the same thing is true here. Jesus tells us in verse 13, 14, he says, And you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you. You invite the poor, the, poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. You have pure motives. You have giving motives. You have true sacrificial love by putting others first. And you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You will be repaid. Your reward will come. What a beautiful thing. Obedience is always rewarded, folks. But the semblance of obedience, the outward whitewashed tomb kind of obedience isn't obedience. It isn't love. And that, there is condemnation. Christ will be repaid, has been repaid for his obedience. He is exalted by the Father. And Christ's true followers will have wonderful inheritances. We mentioned Ephesians chapter 1 and the resurrection, the great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. God values giving to others now and promises rewards to come. But as I mentioned, Jesus now reverses the imagery and he turns it upside down. And I think it's because, really, of this statement in verse 15 by one of the Pharisees who just kind of echoes, really oozes out this quid pro quo. Yeah, we're going to eat bread. Blessed everyone, anyone who's going to get in the kingdom. And Jesus says, hmm, it's not true. You can't have the words. You can't have the semblance, the shell of, a, of an obedient life without what, Jesus, without what Jesus did to you in your heart to help you be a sacrificial lover like him. And so he reverses the imagery of the parable and now God is the host. And the question we need to ask is, how do the religious Pharisees stack up? <laughs> we probably know the answer, right? But here it is, verse uh, 16, right? It says, but he said to him, a man was giving a big dinner, and he invited, there's a word again, many, and at the dinner hour he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and the lanes and the cities and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the slave said, master, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who you who were invited shall taste of my dinner. That is how the Pharisees stack up. None of them will taste my dinner. You know, religion makes many excuses, but only God's way 
is true salvation. Look at that, verse 18. They all began to make excuses. And you know, some people, uh, as reading through this and studying this out, some people made the observation that, uh, you know, these excuses aren't that bad. These are excuses are uh, basically social and, uh, and um, work-related, right? Oxen and, and providing, right? So trying to establish a household and, and, and having land and, and uh, certainly getting married, right? Uh, those first two excuses, um, you know, uh, another one said, well, you know what, did you have to actually go out and look at the land right then and there? Probably not. And oh, by the way, uh, the setting for this is probably uh, later on, right? It's the dinner hour, verse 17, which is different than the hour that Jesus is there, the, the lunch hour, more or less. But in verse 17, it's the dinner hour, which means that the sun's going to be going down. So how much can you really inspect your land anyway? That's just an excuse. And same thing, how much can you, uh, you know, work your oxen and, and, and inspect them anyway, right, when the night is coming? Uh, and then the third reason, verse 20, I've married, all right, and, and that certainly could potentially be a, a legal uh, a, a law uh, excuse, right? We, we understand that uh, in, in the Mosaic law, uh, the first year of an Israelite's marriage was kind of off limits. It was like this, this year-long honeymoon. Um, and, and so uh, even, even in terms of the law, uh, there's some excuses here. But what's the point? The point is religious system makes all kinds of excuses, folks. It makes all kinds. We tend to do that. We tend to do that. God's way is true salvation. And here's the problem. Religion has never been nor will ever be enough. It cannot save. It cannot. It can make a lot of excuses it can make it fit into its mold, and when it doesn't, it just makes excuses. But that's not enough. That's not enough. So real quickly, maybe a, uh, a good companion passage is James chapter 2. And just turn there for a second. You know, the Gospels often show us, they do show us the way of Jesus Christ and his life. They show us by picture. And the epistles instruct us unto his example. And James 2 does that for us. When he says in verse 1, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, so he's talking about church, the church here, right? That's, the, that's now the context. And there's a man who comes in to our assembly with a gold ring and fine clothes and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes. Why? Because you can get. And say, you sit here and in a good place, place of honor. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. You have not made, you have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives. Verse 5, listen. 
my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do, do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? And here it is, folks. If you, however, are fulfilling the royal law, the king's law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. They can make excuses. They can have word love, but no sacrificial love. And whoever keeps the whole law but yet fails to sacrificially love like Jesus has been guilty, become guilty of it all. Another great epistle to note is Romans chapter 13 in verses 8 and following in this cross-reference. The whole point of the law was to love God, right? Which must be truly demonstrated in how we love each other. That's true. That's another cross-reference, 1 John chapter 4. The Pharisees abused the law to their own self-promotion, to their own purposes, and therefore missed the entire law. Folks, true love, demonstrated in Christ-like love to others, will always be the antithesis of religiosity. Christ-like love isn't just mere words. And it's not convenient, and it doesn't proof text and say it's not good to love over here, but it's good to love over here. Christ-like love is consistently putting others first. Christ-like love is also radical. It's going to cost. It's going to understand that we don't really even deserve to be around the dinner table yet, but because of the invitation, we are. And it's going to radically put others first. And Christ-like love is going to sacrificially Put others first. So a lesson from parable. How are you loving? How are you loving? Father, please help us. Please help us to love like Jesus Christ. Help us not to be those who are whitewashed, but yet dead. And Lord, no doubt there are some who may be in our midst like that. Father, I pray that you would help them to consider that externalism and the mere measure of self-promotion and the mere measure of others' esteem is nothing. And we cannot fake sacrificial love because sacrificial love is consistent and it's radical. And it puts others first. You've got to change our hearts to make us more like Jesus Christ in that regard. So help us. Lord, and thank you so much for this church, for the people, for those who demonstrate every day consistent, radical, sacrificial love like Jesus Christ. Help us as we seek to get out of this cold winter and into the, our communities more and more this summer, this coming summer, that you would help us to 
uh, just fully love like Jesus Christ, to see others come to know him and to do the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you.